Welcome back, Intimates. Thanks for your support on Patreon, making this 2021 season possible. This podcast is about all things intimate, relationships, love, connection, community, consensual non-monogamy, kink, orgies, lovers, and of course, good old-fashioned sex. I talk with old friends and even meet some new ones. I interview people from all walks of life, from recovered addicts to counselors, sex partners to perfect strangers. I'd like to thank my hosts, the Musqueam First Nation, as this podcast is recorded on their unceded ancestral territory, where I was born, where I work, and where I currently live and play. So settle in for an intimate conversation. This session, we talk about the need for emotionally well men who are embodied and have a sense of connected masculinity, not just with other men, but also with themselves. We chat about our resources and we chat about agreements. We chat basically about what it looks like to try and be a good role model for boys and men. On gender, I resonate very strongly with both masculine and feminine fields in ways that are often perceived by cis men as different or other in some way. So either I'm perceived as maybe gay or just not a cis man, or perhaps both. I mean, both is probably somewhat accurate in that I think of myself as non-binary or genderqueer, but I do also sleep with women. I've gotten to the point where when folks talk about an ideal masculine or sacred feminine or any of the other parsings of these categories that are perhaps not strictly arbitrary, but to me feel very much mostly arbitrary, in, in my opinion, I just, I've gotten to the point where I just, I smile and nod <laughs> because choosing to accept one archetype um, and fitting all these ideals and, and, and such into these boxes just it seems like a completely unnecessary amount of mental gymnastics for a thing that I don't personally find a lot of value in. I don't find the notion of, of strictly defined genders or even loosely defined genders extremely helpful to me. So in any case, court does a really good job of qualifying language around gender. I used to police language a lot and I used to get offended when people misgendered me. And I think once most of my family and most of my found family started getting it right most of the time, because I use they, them pronouns, I've just started caring a heck of a lot less. Now, that's not available to everybody, that they can have their families accept them and their found families accept them. And there are still members of my inner circle and even my family who get it wrong from time to time. Still, it feels right for me at this place I'm at to kind of ease off that need for perfection and clarity because I'm starting to identify that it's a way I cope with my anxiety. I've been trying more when folks use terms in a way that I perceive as harmful. I mean, one, I still try and be a good role model and I still try and um, meet what I feel are my duties. But also, Especially when people are self-identifying in a way that doesn't work for me or that I think might be harmful, I try and simply assume a person is doing their best. When folks use racialized terms, it can get especially hard as race isn't always visible. So rather than ask about race and get clarity, I just assume the best. So if someone uses an indigenous term, I assume they must be part indigenous. And if not, okay, they probably made a mistake. I'm just sort of, I'm trying to practice not needing to have a quote-unquote correction for someone. And further, when people do make mistakes, as they do, because we're all humans, I don't like the idea of canceling people over mistakes, especially when they're willing to do the work. I also don't like the idea of hiding mistakes that I've made in either failing to hold someone accountable or 
just if I make a mistake and say something super shitty myself, I also don't like hiding mistakes that others make um, with their consent. For example, some would argue I have a duty of responsibility to my listeners to make those corrections because failing to do so is complicity in the harm of the term. And I think there's some truth to that. It's one of the reasons I have these intros. I also think modeling how I struggle with ethical issues and sort of, you know, feel them out back and forth is a very vulnerable thing that is very rarely documented and offered. A lot of the time, you know, people have their problematic opinions and think it through and then go, okay, no, I've made this correction. And then they only share with people the end result. And you get this really false idea of people as seemingly somehow so together or always on, you know, the right side of history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when in practice, it's a much it's a much messier experience for me, anyways. So, as a lighter skinned BIPOC person, I know how frustrating it can be to have folks ask me what my race is. So, I'm also trying to balance that when I think about how to address certain things. So, with so many factors and identities, even trying to offer a very simple correction can turn into a very complicated balance with lots of lots of stakeholders and lots of variables. Um, so anyways, I just wanted to sort of expose my internal monologue and the sort of the thoughts I was having about how am I going to offer um, information in a way that's not, you know, super offensive or that doesn't tend to tread on, um, you know, white fragility if that is the case or applicable. So yeah, I just wanted you to see the meticulous thought that I put into trying to keep everyone as safe as I can and sort of preserve um, all of the narratives in a situation because I don't believe there is one capital T truth. I really believe that we all have our own truths of what we were emotionally experiencing and how we process the events and remember the events. So there's also the flip side here. The alternative case, on one hand, I might be speaking to a person who, you know, is indigenous, um, who is legitimately using, you know, language that is traditionally reserved for indigenous folks because, um, for example, the term two-spirit is considered a sacred term um, by many indigenous peoples. Um, you can read more at conspireforchange.org forward slash a dash letter dash two dash white dash people dash using dash the dash term dash two dash spirit forward slash. That was a mouthful. Um, but there is also the alternative case that I'm talking to a white person as a POC. And in those cases, there's a lot of fear around white fragility that can come up. And when you aren't sure which of those two realities you're in, sometimes sometimes I just default to saying nothing, um, which is what I did in, in this case, and then just sort of offered um, a modeling of how I choose to talk about gender non-binary stuff myself. Um, and that that's sort of a much more passive me than you normally would see on the show. And I just wanted to sort of, again, take 15 seconds of the show you're going to listen to today and essentially blow it up into, you know, minutes of me talking about this one moment, because I honestly believe that that's a valuable exercise. But it's totally OK if all this just sounds pedantic to you. I just wanted to also help folks out if they're kind of struggling with like, well, what do you mean I can't use this term to spirit? Like, it's who I am. Um, what I will say is that link I gave is actually a very compassionate way to examine other cultural representations of similar concepts in European sort of fashion and in and around Europe. What I would say is third genders are not unique to indigenous culture. 
Um, and I don't just mean like hijras in India and, you know, the various other cultures that are sort of coming to mind, which I'm kind of blanking on right now, but I'm pretty sure um, that Egypt has had third, third genders in its past. And there were a lot of interesting examples of other gender queer and gender fuckery going on, even in European descended mythology. So I encourage you to go to that Conspire for Change link I gave earlier. And last but not least, you can follow CourtVox at CourtVox on Instagram, or you can reach out at thebodyvox.com. Similarly, I'm at IntimateVictor at, on Instagram and slash IntimateVictor on Facebook, at IntimateVictor on Twitter. And of course, you can reach out at Victor at VictorSalmon.com or go to IntimateVictor.com. And now, without further ado, let's go to Court as he is his usual wonderful self and talks about how we can find better resources for better masculinity here on Intimate Interactions. All right, so I am speaking with Court Fox, a somatic sex educator, intimacy consultant, and member of the World Association of Sex Coaches. And today we're going to be talking about a desire or need to emotionally fit, um, to become embodied, and to be connected as a man. Is that right, Court? Yeah. I think, you know, awesome. what's interesting about my work is that um or what i think is interesting about my work <laughs> sure is that i am i consider myself two spirit right i am a gay man and i work with gay men and i work with straight women and i work with straight couples and gay couples so i kind of sit at this intersection of different bodies and orientations that allows me to look um at people in a different way and mm-hmm. What, what I've noticed in the last two years that I've been doing this is that the call for men to step up, the call for the masculine, and when I say masculine, you know, I'm not talking about toxic masculinity. I'm talking about um, supportive, loving, um, Nurturing, Smart, perhaps. Nurt- yeah, nurturing, yeah. masculine to show up. And and people are really hungry for it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it comes from, it comes from like, a, I think, a place of people growing up without their fathers mm-hmm. um, and really our fathers being put in a place where they didn't quite know um, what it meant to be a father necessarily. Sure, that's um, fair. And, you know, and then it's like women have been in this really um, interesting growth pattern over the last, I don't know, 30 years specifically, even longer. Um, but even in the last 10 years, uh, when the, with the women's rights movements, kind of like having this huge resurgence um, where women are like leading the charge. They're, they're like, we're done. We are not only standing in our feminine, we're standing in our fierce feminine. And we're having to stand in our masculine, too, because these men need to, like, step up as well. And, and I'm talking in really, like, polarizing terms, and I hate doing that, but I'm, I'm doing it. I just want to name that. Okay. Um, I think, you know, in terms of, like, orientation and identity, between masculine and feminine, there's a ton of grayscale. Um, sure. But for purposes of this discussion and argument, I'm just going to speak in more um, polarity. Sure. 
Um, yeah, so for me, I uh, identify as non-binary, so I have, um, I really resonate with what you're saying about how there's a lot of grayscale and how, you know, sometimes I do feel a lot more feminine or a lot more masculine. It just really depends on sometimes just the day, not even the situation. Yeah. So I can totally respect that. Um, and yeah, I totally hear what you're saying about, um, about women asking for more, asking for better, wanting standards to be higher. That's a theme that, that I keep hearing from my friends who are women. Yeah. And I also think, you know, men, in, including gay men, um, but straight men as well, men are kind of in this position of like, where, where are we supposed to, how are we supposed to fit in here? Like my old ideals of thinking, my old kind of patterns and um, ways of being are really being challenged. And mm-hmm. a lot of that community is like, go do your own learning. <laughs> We're done with you. Right. right. And so these men are like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. You know, when I look at the resources for um, humans discovering sexuality, you know, from like a learning perspective, from a somatic perspective, you know, the type of work that I'm doing, mm-hmm. it's really geared towards women. Like there's a lot more people working with women. Um mm-hmm. There's not that many people working with with straight men in particular, um, and there's not that many people doing what I do with with gay and queer men either. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if this podcast has any kind of legs, what I would say to people out there is like, if this is a calling for you, there is a need and a want for your presence here. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not just from a, like a, a professional teacher perspective like myself. It's really from a, a presence of, of a strong masculine, of, of the guide, right? Somebody who's going to show up um, and say, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. I don't know mm-hmm. everything and I'm willing to learn. I think that's something that that men can really um, men can really come in with that attitude and be welcomed in, in a in a lot bigger way. And I, I say that to myself. As I'm saying it, I'm also saying it to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, you know, going back to my first conversation of a little bit of humility mm-hmm. of coming in and being like, I actually I don't know. I'm like relearning myself. I'm relearning what masculinity means to me, what it means mm-hmm. to my sister, my mother. And in some ways, like they're relearning with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think women are playing a really integral um, part in the evolution of the human spirit and um, body. Yeah, in terms of um, the gendered conversation we're having specifically even, um, just by refusing to continue to do all the free emotional labor and saying, go do this learning on your own, I think it kind of exposes how woefully ill-prepared we've been by our upbringings to do a lot of this deep inner work. Yeah, absolutely. A really (laughs) great reflection. And, you know, a lot of these men are like, 
you know, and I'm, I'm speaking about the men that have come to me and they're, sure. they're like, I'm lost, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, and they're like my wife or my girlfriend or my sister or my mother is just like, no, I, I'm done. <laughs> and it's like, that's right. Because she raised, your mother raised you already. Right. Mm-hmm. So these women are doing their own work and they don't need to be your teacher all the time. Mm-hmm. So go take a class. It's the same thing around, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and even around queer bodies and um, the LGBTQ community. of Sandy. Sure, that it's our work to do. Right. It's like, no, like we're like heavy lifting every day. Oh. Just being ourselves is, is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, you know, the energy to school you on how to be appropriate and, and how to live in this new world, like go take a class, read a book. There's so many freaking resources. It's unacceptable anymore to say, I don't know. Speaking of resources, do you have any favorite ones you want to share? For what? Um, For doing some of the heavy lifting around um, relearning and redefining what masculinity means to Mm. oneself. Interesting. I, um, I don't know if I have a particular resource or um, book. I'll tell you two books that I've read recently that I really enjoyed. One is a book around women's sexuality, but I definitely think it has legs into men's sexuality as well. Um, And and I'm going to take that back. I'm going to say it has legs in sexuality, period. Sure. For all bodies. Um, And it's called Come As You Are by Emily Nagowski. Yeah. Um, it's a really brilliant book. Um, she cites a lot of uh, studies that have been done over the years. And so she talks about things from a scientific perspective as well as from a somatic perspective. Um, and it's a brilliant book. I really recommend it for everybody, not just not just female bodies. Um, mm-hmm. And then another book I read recently... Um, the Paradox of Porn um, by one of my mentors, Don Shuey. Um, and Don Shuey is primarily a, a therapist and a somatic for um, queer and, and gay men. I think he also works with women as well, but um, this book really talks about porn and its importance in gay men's lives, queer, queer people's lives, mm-hmm. um, as well as like the shadow sides of it. And mm-hmm. kind of like showing both sides, which I think we often um, we often talk about porn in terms of the the shadow sides, right? Yeah. And then we all leave that circle and go jack off in our bathroom alone <laughs> with with, <laughs> sure. with our mobile po- mobile phones turned to our favorite scene on Pornhub. Sure. Um, and so. It's just acknowledging that porn has had its place and acknowledging that porn is not real sex. It's not education. It is entertainment. And still, the brain doesn't make a distinction. Um, It's just stimulation. And the brain doesn't know the difference between it being um, education or entertainment. It just knows that it's there. Um, Sure. So I don't know if those those are books that really um, talk about mentor. 
like a healthy masculine. Um, sure. But they kind of do in a roundabout way. Um, yeah. I have a couple of resources as well. I would love to hear them. Yeah. Um, so I came across this book that's not so much focused, again, very similar to your resources. They're not quite what we're looking for, but they're in and around it. Um, the book, I Don't Want to Talk About It, is um, a discussion of depression in men, mm. but it very much focuses on masculine identity in parts because it is specifically for men. And this is a book? Correct. Awesome. Um, it's kind of, it's a little dated in that it's rooted in like, I want to say like the 90s in terms of its perspectives on on various mm. um on even on even homophobia, it's very progressive for its time, but it is like not our time. Got it. But I still find that it's a really good resource um, for when it comes to male depression. I also really love the idea of well-run men's groups. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's one that is offered um, online called Hearts on Our Sleeves, and uh, one of my friends runs that, and. Uh, I've, I've been there before and it's a really good space. So regardless of whether it's that space specifically, just having folks know like there are men's groups out there. And if you find one that you feel like isn't really pushing you in a way that that, um, that person or that felt sense in your body, that's telling you that it might be time to relearn masculinity. If you're not feeling like you're moving in the right direction, it might not be the right group. And there are a lot of different groups. Yeah. I think in terms of like workshops, um, mm-hmm. you know, Body, Body Electric is, is they run workshops for, for gay men um, and their work is similar to the type of work that I do. Um, for women, um, there's the retreat a company that I work for called Back to the Body, which is um, sensual retreats for women. And then there's also... Um, the Apollo Project, um, which is run by Cosmo Means, and it's actually in um, Victoria, um, and that focuses with um, focuses on straight and bi men, and it's also a retreat. And then um, there's another group, and I just did a podcast with them, I think last week, um, with Matt. I can't say his last name, Lancidial, um, and. Oh, what is this? It's gay men, gay men's brotherhood. Um, they do men's groups as well. Um, gay men going deeper. So I have more resources than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I thought you did. Yeah. Sometimes I just have to like pick my brain a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know I have a resource in my email somewhere um, because there is a national men's group in Canada that's trying to, I think it's, it might literally, they had a conference called Redefining Masculinity. It's called Next Gen Men. That's the name of the group. Next Gen Men. Yeah, and they're, they're more of like a Canada-wide one. And so are these groups, I'm just curious, um, are these groups really focused more on heterosexual men or is it all men? Is it queer men? It's, men? it's supposed to be all men, but I get the feeling that they're still working through that founders effect that a lot of the people that founded in my, at least from the, from like a superficial kind of way have been to their con, but, uh, um, it was, oh, actually, you know what? It was a different group that put on Redefining Masculinity. Apparently I, there are a lot of resources that I go to and I did just all run together in my head. 
Um, I've been to a talk for Next Gen Men where they talked about a platform for offering better masculinity. I think they're more focused on all men, and I would I would expect that they would define themselves as more pan-focused, but for gay men going into that space, they might find it very head-centering. Yeah. I think that's, like, such a tricky... Um such a tricky thing, you know, that greed, um, you know, queer men and gay men going into head spaces is sometimes really intimidating and a little scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also, it goes the other way around for, um, it gets tricky if you're inviting, you know, predominantly heterosexual men into queer and gay spaces. Totally. Because, you know, gay people have had to live consistently in heterosexual spaces and have finally found a space that they can be open and free. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in that is, you know, not from that, that space. And it's a little bit, it's, there's a definite trigger there. Um, and, mm-hmm. and like the warning lights go on. Right. I, I think there's potential healing to be had there. And I think it really, um, it lends itself to the to the curation of the actual person leading that group, right? Mm-hmm. Of knowing who you're inviting into the space, um, if it's a mixed group, and really being clear of what the expectations are, what the boundaries are um, for all people, so that everyone does feel safe enough to um, be heard and to speak. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's the expectation and etiquette setting <clears throat> to try and help people flag, like, this is a different kind of space you're walking into. Um, and sometimes that's doable, like, at a code check, and sometimes it's really, really not. Um, we tried yeah. to run an event, uh, Dangerous Liaisons, which mm-hmm. was a pan-BDSM event, and we ran it downtown Van at a predominantly gay club. It was a club that just almost exclusively held gay men's events. Mm-hmm. And what we found was the touch etiquette in Vancouver for the gay men scene is just different than it is for, like, the pan scene. So we were getting folks coming in who, like, you know, sort of, yeah, 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 at the coat check. And then they would literally walk into scenes because they just weren't from BDSM at all. What you mean around consent, around asking? Yeah. And be touch, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so tricky in gay men's spaces. It's so difficult. Yeah. People are like, hi, nice to meet you. Let me touch your butthole. and and i feel like there's there's a time and a place where when you demark spaces where that's the norm people are at least informed about that risk moving into the space but when you have like pan and head folks in a bdsm context going in with this idea of like a sacred space or a sacred scene where like it's just it's uninterruptible like no one will come in and disturb that ideally um, and then you have the you know, almost right. polar opposite of, like, super touchy-feely, and you put those two groups of humans together in a dungeon, and you don't offer adequate education, things can go very sideways, which is what ended up happening, and we ended up having to close the event, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, so it goes to, like, when you're going to do an event like that, sometimes mm-hmm. it's almost like you need to spend a morning, um, which is something we do at retreats, it's something I do with my private clients is like the first thing we talk about is agreements mm-hmm. and you know what the agreements aren't always that sexy that's not people are not coming to work with me or to go to workshops to talk about agreements and 
I'll tell you something that throughout the entire time that I'm working with someone, I refer back to our agreements. Mm-hmm. And even at workshops, we refer back to the agreements and they're really like huge learning tools and they're there for, they're there for a reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're, you know, the agreements around boundaries, around confidentiality, around touch, around, you know, choice and voice. Um, those are really important. And sometimes I think really with big events, you have to um, kind mm-hmm. of sit down with everybody and go, these are the rules right these are the agreements can you agree yeah. to this will you agree to this and great we're on the same page let's move forward i think 100% that also like gives people the sense of feeling safe enough um i use the mm-hmm. word safe enough and we often use that in somatic sex education because you know you're never going to be fully 100% safe um yep. and sometimes being 100% safe is like not that sexy. So sure. being safe enough is, um, you know, allowing your nervous system to settle and feel comfortable enough to let go a little bit to, again, to pursue pleasure. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking about that, Court. Thank you. So how did you like it, Intimates? Discuss your ideas with the community at facebook.com slash intimatevictor. You can tweet me at intimatevictor. You can follow me on Instagram at intimatevictor. Pretty easy, right? If you can spare the cost of a cup of coffee to help the show keep going, head to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. We hugely appreciate your help to continue making intimate conversations for you and yours. If not, you can always help other intimacy nerds find the podcast by leaving us a good review anywhere online, especially iTunes. The opening music is on hold for you, made of algorithmically generated notes and chords and played by an AI saxophonist. This closing music is Gymnopédie, number one by Eric Satie. Both are provided royalty-free courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks so much for your time and may your most important relationships be filled with intimate interactions. Be well.